So hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Ebijamra, and it's great to meet you. I'm your host, and uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we're glad to have you. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, then uh, you know what to expect. We love to talk about difficult conversations, and more importantly, we talk about hope and difficult conversations. And so uh, today, uh, we continue a series that I have grown to love. It's called Uncomfortable Conversations About Racism in the Church. We have heard from a lot of different people, and today is no exception. You're going to love my guest. Remember that this series is primarily aimed at the church. Uh, it's aimed at people who consider themselves Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're focusing on this group is that we know and believe uh, that God has called us to lead the world in reconciliation and love. And yet so often we find that we're not measuring up to that. And so we want to get a bit better biblical understanding on how to love better. We don't want to shy away from the uncomfortable. We want to lean in to see what God uh, wants to do in us in this season and in this day and age. So I am so grateful for the guests that have been willing to teach us. And today is no exception. Again, Dorina Williamson is my guest. Let me tell you a little bit about her before I bring her on. She is a preacher's kid and a pastor's wife. She is um, a writer, an author, a leader, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, her context. She uh, lives in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, as I understand it, the place where everybody ought to be uh, in the last <laughs> to five years. If you're not from Nashville, you don't count. So uh, the Lord has led her and her husband to plant a church called Strong Tower Bible Church. I'm looking forward to hearing about their church community because it is multi-ethnic and I think we'll learn a lot from her experience. She's written uh, three kids books, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. My background is in pediatric ER and I love my nephew, Sam, as many of you know. So she's written Colorful, Thoughtful, and Graceful. And Dorina, those are books that are going to make it to my nephew's uh, bedside table uh, this uh, week. So I'm looking forward to getting those for him. In fact, while I'm here, and even before we talk, I'll be giving away a copy of each of those books uh, just because I can. And so Dorina, it's awesome to have you. You've done a lot of work um, in this conversation and on ethnicity and and shaping people's perspective and Christians' perspective on race, disability, and homelessness in your books. So I'd like to hear more about your story, and I'm so looking forward to it. How are you doing today? I am doing great, Lena. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, I forgot to mention, too, you have four kids of your own. <laughs> yes, I do. And it's crazy to say kids because they are not little anymore. They are 16, 20, 24, and 26. So we've been oh, having lots of fun. <laughs> Have they, how much did they weigh in on your on your kids' series, the books that you've written? You know, actually, that's a great question. I don't think anyone's asked me that. Um, they certainly inspired and influenced the thoughts that I had, but I didn't get their weigh in until I had finished the first story. And I was actually a little nervous to have any of them read because, you know, <laughs> your own children are going to keep it real. And <laughs> I raised them to do so. And I was a little nervous about what they would think. But I have been so blessed, not only for their support of the very first manuscript, but each successive book. And um, they truly are incredible cheerleaders. Um, they help me make sure my tech is all together good when I'm, you know, doing podcasts or Instagram lives or anything. Yeah, yeah. So um, no, I, it's not so happened, but, you know, <laughs> we're the ones who tell it like it is, right? That's, That's right. Awesome. So, so interesting. So you grew up in a pastor's home and you became a pastor's wife. Now, we, we, we often see the opposite happen. Like, I'm never going to marry a pastor. Talk a little bit about your journey into that. 
Well, I was one of those who didn't say it would never happen, but I certainly did not seek it. My husband and I met in college and he never planned to be a preacher or a pastor, but Mm. God's call on his life was unmistakable. And I'm grateful that I got to see the unfolding of his ministry pursuits and see the hand of God on his life and really affirm Mm. um, what would be a direction that would, would be a call for both of us. And and so um, as he, you know, did you guys meet? What was the context of meeting? uh, We met in college in Virginia at Liberty University. And Chris became, uh, you know, accepted his call into ministry. And I was planning to pursue psychology and counseling as a career and, uh, you know, join in ministry, however God directed our steps. And he was a part of a Christian rap ministry. Um, and they actually began to record some, some uh, record, record music. And so that's kind of what led us to this Nashville Music City area. And our desire as a young couple was um, to really, you know, wholeheartedly pursue that work. Um, recording, you know, they were traveling around the country. God was opening up doors to minister in prisons and on the streets. And um, Is that a really, you would know, um, the group was called Transformation Crusade. And uh, they are no longer making music actively as a group that ceased in the mid nineties. Um, but my husband has actually, since you're asking, Lena, I'll give a plug yeah. that he has just put out some new music and his. Um, his rap name is the words PC Dub, which stands for Pastor Chris W. So PC Dub, oh. if people look that up on iTunes or Spotify, they can stream um, his music. And it's basically sermons in the form of rhyme. And that's what really drew me no, as a awesome. super, yeah, It's so fun. And you know, I was a conservative pastor's kid growing up in a Baptist church context. So I was not allowed to listen to secular music and was, was really unfamiliar with the art form of rap music. But when Chris and I met in college as friends and I saw the hand of God in his life, I heard in his raps sermons and I heard more content than a lot of pastors put. And so, um, you know, fast forward to moving to Nashville, you know, his group was pursuing that full time once they finished seminary and God put a detour in our path and they lost their record contract. And we really wandered and tried to figure out why God would call us here. And um, mm-hmm. God's bigger picture and his detour for us um, beyond the ministry of Transformation Crusade was um, that there was some good work happening um, in Franklin, which is outside of Nashville, uh, a Civil War Confederate loving town with lots of um, rich history, the narrative that's largely and mostly been told from um, you know a white um, perspective. And yet, um, you know, God was beginning to build some bridges and break down some walls. And he called us to connect with people here who were doing good work and who were looking for um, some black leadership. They realized that uh, they needed uh, black voices to speak into um, the bridge building work they were doing. And uh, so Chris and I connected with them, began joining their community work. And in that context, God just began to break our hearts and give us a, a call, an unmistakable call to plant a diverse church. And so there was that thing I never expected as a pastor's kid. I thought my church life experience ended there, but I can see that God used uh, my upbringing, uh, you know, being around ministry families and missionaries from around the world, giving me a multicultural uh, appreciation in my upbringing that would lend to um, 
a great opportunity to really build God's diverse kingdom here in Franklin, Tennessee. How, how long ago did you guys plant the church? We planted the church in 1995. So this is our 25th year. Wow. Wow. And so both of you guys had grown up just generally, just to get some details here for the construct of this conversation, both of you grew up in black churches. Yes. My husband uh, grew up, uh, you know, his parents were a part of Black Baptist churches, went on to be founding members of um, a non-denominational kind of Bible church, um, but with with a mm-hmm. Baptist background. And I grew up, um, my father pastored a Black church. His church is now mm-hmm. a part of the Southern Baptist Convention and has increased in diversity while remaining largely a uh, uh, you know, I would say 90, 95% black, but in a military area in, in the Tywater area of Virginia, they, they, you know, have a lot of uh, families, you know, mixed race families and such that, that are part of their fellowship. But both of us, yes, our backgrounds were largely black churches. Now for me, I also had, I I was going to say, because you mentioned, I mean, you, you had a goal, not just to start a black church. You really had a goal to be a multi-ethnic church. That's right. That's right. And that was really a struggle at first, Lena, to be honest, because we both were, were, were more familiar with the black church context. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. going to school, you know, at a school like Liberty University, um, I grew up in Virginia for about six years as a child when my dad was finishing college and seminary. So I did have seasons of life where I was in a majority white church context. So um, again, I can see in my upbringing and my story that God was preparing me to be well-versed in in music culture and worship culture and Mm -hmm. just life culture of, of white evangelicalism as well as the black church. But when we began to feel this call of God to plant our church, you know, we were at a Presbyterian majority white church, but we were ministering through that church into neighborhoods that were predominantly black and that were um, underserved. So even in that, God was putting us in this context where we were developing relationships in this Presbyterian church, which was breaking down our denominational boxes as Baptist raised kids mm-hmm. and really preparing the ground for a work that would, you know, we like to say we experience and explain and expand God's diverse kingdom. And so, you know, seeing God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that is inclusive of people from every nation Mm -hmm. and tribe and kindred and tongue, as we see in Revelations. And so we can experience that here and now. And and yet it's a very purposeful work. And so, um, you know, to be open to that and to say yes to something that we had not done, we didn't even see it. It wasn't even existent here in in Franklin. so we had to visit some multiracial churches around the country and just take take note of how did they do worship? You know, how did how does it right. look? What it, it's it's really an anomaly. Um, but yet we knew this is what God was calling us to do. And did you feel any pushback? I mean, you mentioned before the podcast that your church is mixed about 50-50, roughly speaking. You can mm-hmm. talk to that in a bit. But when you started, you had even more white people than black. I mean, talk a little about a lot. I mean, my I sort of approach this conversation sometimes with this with this, and maybe maybe wrong. I mean, I, I really have to critique myself in this, but I sort of have a bent to think, you know, a lot of white Christians don't recognize the racism that they have. That's sort of my hypothesis. But but really, when you started the church and you started seeing a lot of white people come, I mean, talk about, was there ever an issue that you were black pastor and his wife, you know, you're, you're, you're the couple. Talk a little bit in, about that beginning yes, in 19. Yes. Well, being a part of a white Presbyterian church, 
um, already had us, you know, being regarded in a certain way by by some of the black population here, um, just out of suspicion. Mm. You know, are you are you a sellout? Um, are you black enough? Um, mm. And and that's just a reality. You know, that's because of the distrust um, that's just existing. You know, we're outsiders coming in, and and we understood that, but um, we knew that the only way to to build bridges in that with your own people is just through community, you know, through proximity, through mm-hmm. life on life. And so we were just faithful to do that as a young couple. And, um, but then, you know, I understood that for a lot of the white people, um, for my husband as the lead pastor and the lead communicator in our church, you know, his, his giftedness and his style of oral communication was very appealing um, to people. Mm -hmm. And they were drawn to his expository teaching. And, um, you know, it was a new thing and Christians love bandwagons. We love movements. We love moments. We love the latest (laughs) and the, the, the cool thing. And so we didn't even realize that we were that, you know, but 1995 is on the heels of promise keepers. And so as Chris Mm. likes to say, you know, you get all these guys together and you tell this largely white, um, you know, congregation of men, you know, go hug a black brother or hug a a brother of color. And, you know, he gets bombarded (laughs) with a hundred white guys trying to hug him. But, you know, in that kind of context, you've got a lot of white people who are eager for unity and for reconciliation and for, you know, these biblical words that are thought to be, we're going to just be together and that solves it. And so for a lot of them, that's what our church was. And I say that very carefully Mm -hmm. because in the years to come, we began to realize that we were a fun bandwagon until the conversations got uncomfortable and speak to this series Mm. um, until a black man was elected president of the United States um, until we began seeing this succession of unarmed black men and women being, um, you know, killed by police. And we are seeing protests. And all of a sudden, all of this unity and reconciliation talk is is becoming uncomfortable. And many of the white people then jumped off the bandwagon. And in the meantime, Mm. we've established trust in the black and minority communities, they've seen us um, continue to be consistent and love and serve and join the efforts that black community leaders have been doing for many years. And, and oftentimes, you know, white church movements come in as the white savior, as the great white hope, yeah. as the, the super resourced um entity and they come into the poor, the underserved neighborhoods and do, you know, all kinds of community efforts and bypass, you know, the community leaders who have been there for generations. And we, you know, just began building relationships and and submitting ourselves to learning and listening and, and, and doing that for, for a number of years, just established trust in the community. And so, um, it's been quite the journey, Lena, to see, uh, you know, the plethora of white people and, and even over the 25 years, you know, just those seasons of, of uh, you know, kind of white drawing near and then white flight. Um, and 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 yet we we're still here by the grace of God still. Um, and, and it is an interesting experience. So you start a church with sort of this culture of multi-ethnic, you know, people knowing one another in you're sort of you're right. It is it is a very attractive model to be like, oh, because I've asked this question again and again on this series. Like, will there ever be a day where you don't have a white church and a black church? And you sort of have this ideal environment. But now in bringing it to modern day, because I think race racism right now is become in some ways very political, which is mm-hmm. 
that, I don't think that's good in that it is a biblical human and sin issue. And racism is a sin issue, but, but it's become so political. And so I'm curious, even in your context of your church, where you know one another, you live, you're living life together for some time. Has the, has the conversation shifted? Have you felt like even people within your congregation are they more excited about, say, Black Lives Matter, or are they more like, dude, don't talk about this all the time? Or what, what's been the response to the last, you know, I don't know, even I was going to say three months with George Floyd, but if, even dating back to Ferguson and beyond, maybe you mentioned some some markers like the Obama you know, election, and now, of course, the most recent election, which sort of has divided people in this. Has there been more tension in your church or, on the contrary, more understanding because you know one another as communities of black and white people together. You know, what I love about this season of our church and um, the both the white and the black people, it just, it's not predictable. And that in, itself, in and of itself is uncomfortable, Lena, because as humans, we, we kind of crave the comfort. We crave the familiar. We crave um, knowing how things are going to go. And, you know, whereas there was a time where so many of our white people were, were fragile, um, they were new to race conversations. Um, many still were saying things like, you know, this is just stick to the gospel, just preach the gospel. We've certainly been pained often over the years by white people saying, um, you know, you know, Pastor Chris is preaching about race too much, um, you know, mm. because he would preach on Philemon and dare to, um, you know, address, you know, the, the tension of, um, you know, Ines Forrest and, 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 uh, you know, you know, Paul admonishing, you know, Philemon to, to, you know, receive, you know, this, this former slave as your brother and, and, you know, all through scripture. I mean, race and culture and justice is weaved throughout the word of God. It's just not been, preached and it's not been discussed. And so, you know, we've seen, you know, the fragileness of white people, but then in this day, now we see some of our black brothers and sisters who um, are, are frankly so assimilated to whiteness and to having ears that aren't accustomed to hearing about race or race being a non-issue that, that they feel some agitation. But by and large, mm-hmm. I think what encourages me about our church today is we do have black member, uh, white members who proudly wear their Black Lives Matter shirts, proudly post, mm-hmm. they join the protest, they are active, they are leaning into the work, they are... Um, posturing themselves as learners and as listeners and as lamenters with us. And, um, you know, and God has enlarged our church to not just even be a mostly black, white binary. You know, we have a beautiful yeah. Native American family in our church. And, you know, over the years we've had, um, you know, Latina brothers and sisters who have come through and, and you know, cultures from throughout representing the world. And so, you know, we've been able to sit, sit, close to the table with them mm-hmm. and, and say, share, you know, I, I want to hear your story. I want to understand um, the well, broken. It, yeah. And on that note, I mean, really, what have you guys found to be the best, I hate to use the word strategy, but really strategy to break down walls? Like you mentioned, your husband does, you know, preaches and, and it comes up in sermon series, or I don't know how comfortable he has been, like, you know, 
in the white spaces that I've been in, I've heard my black brothers and sisters critique pastors who didn't say enough back in early days, you know, Trayvon mm-hmm. uh, and, and Michael Brown, on and on. I mean, the, no comments were ever made from the pulpit. And, and there was a big sort of point of surprise and resentment by black members of a church to be like, why aren't you saying anything? And this was back. I mean, now it's like, seems like churches are waking up, you know, to a lot of this conversation. But, but I mean, first of all, how did your husband, has he always been, woke i guess is a is someone who is black just woke by definition because you are black or is there a moment where black people and pastors and leaders sort of say okay i'm going to start speaking and then what have you found even in your church and in this multi-ethnic group what have you found to be the best ways to truly break down sort of barriers so that people aren't defensive and posture when you start talking about it and feel like well you know you're accusing me of being a white supremacist and i'm not you know that sort of mm-hmm. defensiveness that comes up so much Oh, those are both great questions. And so to to your first question, um, you know, my husband has from day one um, communicated Jesus and justice. And Mm -hmm. um, I think for us, the awareness has grown in in hearing people say, you know, I just need to be at a church where they preach Jesus. And, you know, I'm not as concerned about all the cultural stuff. And over the years, you realize that you need to help make them aware that that you don't have to separate it. So it's almost like they feel like, you know, because racial conversation has been so untouched and unfamiliar to, you know, the body of Christ and especially in white evangelical spaces, you know, people feel like justice talk and conversation is is not gospel centered. So you if you're going to do that, it's over there and then in the church context, it's Jesus and real helping people realize that we need both hands on the wheel. <laughs> you know, we need yeah. um, both both of those together. Um, and so he has been faithful. You know, like I said, he's done sermon series on books of the Bible. Um, and then, you know, when there's, you know, something that comes up in that passage that has to do with race or with culture, or with justice, um, you know, he breaks it open and he exposits that. And so for many people, you know, you hear this rhetoric of, of I just... I've read these stories. I just never saw it from that perspective. And so it's giving, you know, people a kingdom lens is what we like to say, where they put on a lens and they're, you know, when you put on a new, you know, glasses lens, you see things that you missed before, or you see them with more clarity um, because you have a different lens on. So I would say Chris has done that from day one. And I think he's just developed as a leader to realize that um, there's just going to be a remnant that's going to receive it and not to worry about, um, the receptivity, you know, but to be faithful to communicate what God has called him to, knowing that truly his audience is one. Um, you know, those who are listening, Jesus often said, "Who he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. It's just because we have ears as we were listening. So he's just found that his place in being faithful to communicate. Um, and then, you know, to your other point about what, what have we found to be most helpful, really encouraging people to be humble and to be proximate. Um, we just can never get past both of those. Um, you know, it takes humility to close our mouths and to open two ears. It takes, um, you know, humility to not act as if you know it all or you are aware of it all. You know, to acknowledge to a brother and sister of another ethnicity that I am completely unfamiliar with your story, with your history. I did mm. not learn about Native American history except for, you know, Pocahontas and the nice little unity picture we hear at Thanksgiving. And so to meet Native American families and to be crushed, Lena, like to have my heart broken and, and to weep over the atrocities that I completely, mm. I was ignorant of. And, and it's hard 
to acknowledge ignorance, but you know, Jesus said that he came to seek and save those who were lost and he came for those who were sick. And so if we posture ourselves as well as fine and good, then we miss out on um, the healing. And so, you know, to be proximate and to be humble, we've just found to be two really uncomfortable things, but Jesus modeled that for us in, you know, um, taking off his robes of glory and taking on the form of a servant, you know, Philippians Mm -hmm. 2 tells us and coming near to us, God becoming man. And so as he did, um, we just try to encourage people and even to model in our own lives to do the same. That's good. What has surprised you the most as you look at the nation and the stance of white churches, uh, even extending to white colleges and universities, what has been the most surprising thing about the way that um, leaders and, and white institutions as a whole who are who call themselves Christians, evangelicals, you know, that sort of narrow field, what has surprised you the most about the way they're handling this conversation? Good or bad for that matter. You know, I would say in this day, what's surprising me and encouraging me is seeing so many more white believers who are leaning in. Um, they are doing practical things like joining the protests or attending a vigil. Um, They're moving past their fear. They're acknowledging their fears. Um, They are Mm -hmm. acknowledging the sins of their ancestors instead of saying that happened a long time ago and I wasn't complicit and you weren't a slave. So why are we talking about this? They are having difficult conversations with their family members. Um, You know, in our city, we're seeing shifting with, um, you know, you know, a fuller story my husband was a part of being told in our downtown region, you know, where now we have representation of black history in the civil war and not just the dominant narrative of the Confederacy, you know? So those things encourage me. I think what discourages me is that in 2020, so many of our white brothers and sisters are still struggling to acknowledge the sin of Mm -hmm. white supremacy. And they're still stumbling over even acknowledging whiteness and saying things like, why does it even matter? Or why do we even have to talk about these things? You know, they want to claim and hold on to colorblindness mm-hmm. and sameness. And, you know, that's part of what inspired me to write my book, Colorful. But I, I, you know, in 2020, I still see that. I still saw yesterday a woman say, why do we even have to talk about these things? How come we can't just love? And, um, and I think, you know, as you've said, we should be leading these conversations, but we haven't. We have been so bankrupt in in our leadership, um, and we've given that place over to people who don't name the name of Christ to take it in directions that are not biblical and are not godly. But we've been silent, and so that's discouraging. And it shouldn't be surprising, but it it still is. Um, and yet, I don't I don't stay in that place of discouragement because I still seek. Um, the the joy and the justice that I see God um, accomplishing through people of every race. And um, it's hard to find sometimes and hard to stay encouraged, but I seek it and God is faithful to show it to me. Well, and I have heard this uh, quite a bit in the questions that I've asked um, the previous interviews. Uh, and I'll ask it to you. I mean, what, do you feel hopeful for the future of the church here in the United States as it pertains to this topic? I do feel hopeful, Lena. Um, it's a cautious hope. Um, I feel hopeful because I know that um, I know that that the victory is won. 
Um, mm-hmm. I know how it ends. Um, and I also know that I stand on the shoulders of men and women who have labored long and hard. Um, mm-hmm. And and when I say that, I don't even just mean black men and women or men and women of color. Um, you know, years ago, Chris and I visited for the first time the Underground Railroad Museum that's on the shores of Cincinnati, Ohio, and we um, wept and were so convicted to learn about um, the white men and women who risked their lives and their livelihood and their families to be a part of the connection of the Underground Railroad. And so whereas, you know, Harriet Tubman and, and the notable Black um, men and women who whose lives as former slaves, you know, were literally risked to go to freedom and to, to bring mm-hmm. others to freedom, um, we just didn't learn as much also about um you know, you know, the, the, um, John Rankins and, you know, so many others that risked their lives. And those things encouraged us because it reminded us against the narrative of hating white people and of white people have done nothing, you know, to be reminded that there've been just a few, (laughs) I wish there were more, but there have been a few all through history who have broken away from the dominant narrative, who have risked to see the image of God, um, who did not agree with with the things that their forefathers um, were complicit in. And so, um, you know, seeing the big picture of history and just being reminded that so many others risk so much. And so the risks that we're called to take today, you know, we can do it. <laughs> you know, we, we have seen yeah. changes. Um, laws have not changed people's hearts, but they have changed some policy. And and so things are better than they were for my grandparents. And I hope my grandchildren will have um, a, mm-hmm. a, a richer and more vibrant hope than, than what I've lived in today. There's so much of the gospel story that can be seen in the history of Black people and when it comes to freedom and the price that one of them was willing to pray, pay for freedom. I mean, I just think it's really, I mean, I, I just remember watching Harriet recently and just mm-hmm. so inspiring because she's a woman of God and, and on and on. But Did You Trust Mercy is another great movie. What are some great resources as we wrap up that you would recommend? Maybe a couple of books that might benefit um, people who might be listening or even a movie. I mean, do you have any suggestions um, that would be useful for our listeners who love to read? Yes. Well, you know, since you mentioned Harriet, I love, I would second that so much. It was such a beautiful reminder of a woman who was led by God, um, you know, so that we don't just um, extract the social um, work that she did in the Underground Railroad from a woman who, you know, the Holy Spirit guided her steps and had it had to be the Holy Spirit of God. Um, and so I loved that that element was brought into that movie. Um, we also loved Just Mercy, um, the book, you know, read the book, um, support mm-hmm. the work of the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson. What a prophetic and bold voice for our time. But that movie was beautiful, heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but necessary. Um, one of my favorite books to recommend um, is a book by a beautiful Korean American. Her name is Sarah Shin. And um, that book is called Beyond Colorblind. And um, I think that her book is really helpful for people of all races, but for white people, it's helpful for them to begin learning that they too have a racial identity. Um, Mm -hmm. Often, you know, white people just because whiteness is normalized, it's been the standard, you know, that's what was used to form the human construct of racism that, you know, set whiteness as better and anyone else is lesser. And so because of that, white people haven't always thought about having 
an ethnic story, but Sarah really helps unpack that God created all of our ethnicity for good, but we all have brokenness in our stories and that in Christ that that can be redeemed. And so um, that's just a beautiful resource that I love to recommend. And then of course, um, my dear friend, Latasha Morrison's book, Be the Bridge and her work through Be the Bridge, um, really enlightening people to the power of community, of, of listening and learning and doing the work. Um, they have great resources through Be the Bridge for families who have transracially adopted, you know, mixed race families, just again, unpacking those necessary things that really need to help us um, in our communities and giving people opportunities to sit at the table together. Um, I love Daniel Hill's book, Wide Awake. I love um, Ibram Kendi's book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, he also has a beautiful kid's book called Anti-Racist Baby. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, gosh, there's just, there's, there's so many, but those are great. No one has mentioned yet. So um, that's awesome. wonderful. And I do have a link on my website at DarinaWilliamson.com. You read my brain. Awesome. (laughs) One of each of your books, I'm going to actually give all three to one person. So we're going to do it. But tell people how you can reach um, you. Yes, please follow me on all the socials. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then on my website, I do have um, my handles are on, on Twitter. I am at DarinaWill. And then on Facebook, I'm at Darina McFarland Williamson. That's so I can keep up with my high school and childhood friends and such. Um, <laughs> and then on Instagram, I'm at Darina Williamson. And uh, and then my website, DarinaWilliamson.com, has a link of additional book resources. Um, also, some great kids books that I particularly cherish, and some other movie recommendations. Uh, you know, movies of different ratings, but. Um, uh, just, you know, great, great resources that I love to share with people. So uh, please and reach out and let me know how I can serve. In November at the Leadership Forum for Lifeway, so people can come and see you in person, if Lord willing, that takes place. So uh, we can also link up in our podcast. Uh, uh, you, I think you're one of the main, the main speakers. So that would be another yes. opportunity for people to meet you. So that would be wonderful, among other events, I'm sure, that they can find on your website. And yeah. Man, um, I, I feel like there's a list of other controversial topics that I would love to sit down and talk with you about. <laughs> Maybe not really, if we don't, but you, but there, there are some things you, 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 we, we sort of danced around, and I think um, that I would love to revisit down the road. But for now, I want to tell you this uh, has been incredibly um, uplifting and encouraging, and I just want to be uh, honest in telling you that this um, has been a quick, quick uh, 35 minutes. I know you've got a lot on your plate today. So I'm going to let you go here shortly. Any last uh, thoughts or comments before we say goodbye? Well, Lena, I just really love to say to all of us, and I include myself in this as a reminder that conversations on race are going to be uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. we need to stop expecting them to make us feel good and finding ways to be comfortable. Um, We are called by Jesus. He clearly said in the gospels over and over that if anyone wants to follow him, um, he did not say you need to find a comfortable seat and and I will make you feel good. He said, you Mm. need to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me. And so denying ourselves 
means that we're going to prefer other people, um, which is again, what we're called to do as believers. And so I just invite us to remember that our job assignment as Christians is to deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow him. And in losing Mm -hmm. our lives for him, we will find um, the beautiful kingdom life that he calls us to where um, we will see each other as fellow image bearers. We will learn our own racial stories and um, give those broken places to our Redeemer and our Savior who has come to redeem us from every race, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And we will be a powerful witness to a world um, that needs to see our oneness as a reflection of the power of the gospel. So I have hope for us. I just hope we will sit Um, sit forward at the table and embrace the discomfort that comes with um, this lane. Um, But in doing so, um, we we, we lose our lives to to find them in Him. Amen. What a great way to end. And uh, I want to thank you for being on this time with us. And I want to thank you guys for listening. As usual, again, connect with our speaker, with our guest, our speaker, both. She's done both today so well, but also um, you can get all of the uh, resources that your heart desires at livingwithfire.org. You guys know that by now, but uh, if you want to connect with me about anything um, in general about Christ or your faith or how to find hope in this world, or if you have more questions about this topic of racism, won't you email me? Use lena at livingwithfire.org or use the contact page on my website. Hey, have a great day. As usual, Jesus is still in control of everything always. I'll see you again next week.